Well, hi everyone, welcome to our next installment of your playlist to Victory, our journey through the Psalms of Ascent, or the Psalms of Degrees, and today we are in Psalm 132, which I've called track number 14, Relying on Yahweh, Relying on Yahweh. Now, if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Psalm 132, obviously, but also have your finger in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel 7, okay, 2 Samuel 7, and then in the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, while you get there, I will just quickly say that we are almost done. Can you believe it? We're almost done. And if I can hop on our very first session in the introduction to this series, I just want to again elaborate that it is good to walk through the Word of God piece by piece, step by step, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because it invites us to get into the Word deeper. Okay, I trust that these words, these names, these places, these contexts have intrigued your curiosity in your Bible study for yourself and improved your general knowledge with a general narrative of Scripture. Um, I also think that going through it bit by bit is parallel to the way God transforms us. God changes us, sanctifies us piece by piece, moment by moment. It's slow um, and steady versus the culture which is basically microwave. I mean, everything wants to be done instantly. Here's a pop in and it pops out. It doesn't work like that. Our journey with God is slow. It's deliberate. And I think going through the Bible um, slow and deliberately is parallel to that. Um, right. It also helps us in how to, how to read the Bible and how to interpret the Bible. If we preach through the Word deliberately and intentionally, looking at its context, getting its meaning and applying it to today, um, incorporating the use of grammar and context, its history, its purposes. I think that benefits everyone going forward. All right. Now, I hope you're ready. Um, you'll notice that this psalm is pretty long. I mean, it's, that's very unusual because all the psalms have been pretty short and intense, but this one's pretty long. Okay. And uh, well, the message is not going to be too long, I trust, but I need to warn you, we've got to get our hands and our heads around four dimensions, okay? Um, four dimensions. What do you mean four dimensions? Well, King Hezekiah is using King David's song, okay? So to, to get the meaning of the song, we've got to understand David and his context. And then we, to understand why King Hezekiah uses that, we've got to get Hezekiah's uh, content, which we have elaborated on over the series. We've got to understand his context to find his meaning. And then we have today's context and the meaning of this word for us today. And then the text calls us forward to look at God. What is his context and meaning of this text for us, not only today, but into the future. So it is a lot to embrace, but fear not. I will be to the point and... Um, Sort of alluding to and pointing to all these dimensions so that we get the full, full inertia of this text hitting our hearts and our minds and our wills. Amen. All right. So let's enjoy this. Let's enjoy this feast and dig in. And I've got to start before we even read the psalm. Um, we've got to start with some quick observations. OK, I do believe King Hezekiah put the psalm together. Although it is anonymous, I do believe he put 10 of them together, borrowing from King Solomon and David at times. Um, but this particular song, he's incorporated from King David. All right? 
you will see, as has been others, that it's a prayer. It's a prayer of crisis. And the context is crisis, which we are all very familiar with. And then you'll see that this psalm centers on King David's vow to build a temple for God. And God's vow back to David that he's going to bless him. Okay? He's going to bless him. All right. Now, where do we start? I would like you to start in the woods on a man's house um, called Abedidum. All right. He's got with him at his house in the woods, all isolated, the Ark of the Covenant. Right. He has had this Ark of the Covenant for 20 years. Now, where should that Ark of the Covenant be is the bigger question. And why is it in the woods, in the wilderness, with some stranger? Right. It's there because King Solomon has had no intention of bringing literally the mercy seat, the presence of God into focus. All right. You'll know that. It wasn't Saul that, they, that God said, he is a man of my own heart, was it? Right. So it's abandoned and neglected. It's there. But the narrative continues. King David comes to power. He consolidates the kingdoms. He moves the capital to Jerusalem. And what's he got his eye on? He's got his eye on the Ark of the Covenant and bringing it to Jerusalem. And he does so. And uh, he has even greater dreams. He wants to build the temple for God. And so on and so forth. His intention is worshipping Yahweh. His intention is to bring worship back to the center of the nation. Not just politics, not just armies, not just uh, economy uh, and industry. But the priority is worshipping Yahweh. Now, this psalm is, in a, is about 300 years before King Hezekiah. All right? Before him. Now, why would this have any meaning for King Hezekiah, it comes to his heart, it comes to his heart, because there were promises made to King David that King Hezekiah is going to start leaning on. Now he's heard from prophet Isaiah. Remember what Isaiah said to him? Don't, you know, prepare, get your house in order, you're going to die. And then King Isaiah said, uh, prophet Isaiah said to him, Look, the Lord has said he's going to heal you. He's heard from Isaiah about his victory through the Assyrians. So he's been relying on that, but he's also been relying on promises given to David 300 years earlier. And what were some of those promises? Now we go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right, here it is. After the king, this is David, this is verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest with all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of these rulers whom I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So, let's just stop there. God is just saying to David in a polite way, You know, no thanks. No thanks. There's no reason um, for you to build me a house. Um, 
Although David's aim is to build him a home, you know, for worship, God says, no, no, uh, my dynasty is going to last forever. Verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did in the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who, who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod yielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I did it away, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom, shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay. So, in this vowing to David, to God, and God's response. Now we don't have time to read the rest of the. You know, David's response to what Nathan says to him, and it's just beautiful, just the humility. So carry on reading that if you wish. Um, but out of this response, there are some things highlighted here, which King Hezekiah has taken to heart. Number one, God's unconditional promise to David, okay, that his house, in other words, his kingdom, his throne, will be what? Verse 13 says, it will be established forever. Forever. Okay? And it's unconditional. I will be his father and he shall be my son. End of story. I shall be his father and he shall be my son. Verse 15, my love will never be taken away from him. Never. So this is, this is significant. And we understand looking at this from where we stand, and I know, have, have you seen the Christmas decorations already starting to <laughs> come up in the malls? <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to start pointing to Christmas already, even in the messages. <laughs> mm, yeah, Christmas is coming. You remember what the angel said to Mary? Uh, Luke chapter 1, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And what did he say? The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Alright, so I mean, what's taking place 300 years before King Hezekiah has got great significance for his heart, his context, his crisis. And even for us today as we look forward to. Right, so... King David's song comes crashing on King Hezekiah's heart because he has more than Isaiah's words. He has Nathan's words to David. In other words, he has God's word. Okay? And every promise that God swore to David 
was also given to David's descendants, which he is one. Which he is one. Now, now, with this drama in mind, we come to Psalm 132. Are you ready? Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants will place on your throne. I will place on your throne, sorry. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons shall sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people shall ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head shall be adorned with a radiant crown. Now there's two ways, two halves of this song. I want you to see it so beautifully put together. All right. We have the prayer of Hezekiah. Well, the prayer of David, okay, which is what King Hezekiah is praying, right, from verses 1 to 10. So he's asking God to answer his prayers based on the appeal for God to honor his promises to David. How does God reply? Verse 11, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. All right, one of our own descendants, I will place on your throne. So I've got this. That's how God responds. I've got this. Lord, you will, you will provide a, a house, a place. And God says, in verse 11 and 12, I, I've got this. I will establish a throne forever and ever. I'm not just going to put a house in place. I'm going to be here forever and ever. All right. Um, Lord, Will you transport this ark? All right, because there, that ark of the covenant, we've heard it in Ephrathah, we came upon it in the fields of Jar. That's a short way of saying wood in the woods. That's where the ark of the covenant is. What's God's response? Verse 13 For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling. So it's going to find a resting place. You have this prayer in verse 9. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. And you have the answer in verse 16. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people shall ever sing for joy. Then the other request in verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. What's God's answer? Verse 17 and 18. Here I will make a horn grow for David. 
and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head shall be adorned with a radiant crown. So God not only answers the prayer, he answers it even better than they, than they even asked. So the bottom line is, King Hezekiah is in great distress. All right? Looking for the deliverance of God. And not just with King Isaiah, uh, Prophet Isaiah's words, but now, remembering 300 years earlier the promises made to David, he puts his faith into that word. But now there's a crisis that we haven't touched on yet. And it's a very personal crisis. We had the crisis of his illness, the crisis of the Assyrians, the crisis of uh, you know, rebuilding after everything that's been lost. But there was another crisis. You know, when Isaiah came to King Hezekiah and told him, listen, get your house in order for tonight you are going to die. Remember, at that time, King Hezekiah had not had any children. He hadn't had any children. So it all came crashing onto his heart that this is it. Is this it? Because there's no descendant. There's no future. And if there's no future for me personally, there's no future for the, for the kingdom. Is this it? And King Hezekiah remembered the promises said to David that his kingdom will be established forever, which means that there must be a child somehow, some way. There must be a miracle here. And surely there was. And surely there was. God did provide a child to King Hezekiah. Uh, three years later, in fact, Manasseh was born and Manasseh became king when he was 12. And then from him, Amon became king. And then after him, Josiah and so on and so forth. So what are some lessons that we can take home today from this great piece of work? Well, and there will be echoes of what we've covered already. But this is interesting, and I think it's very good for us to take to heart, that our faith, particularly in a moment of crisis, when it's tested, okay, the, the strength of our faith and believing in God's promises at this moment, in those moments particularly, is going to rest largely in your knowledge of the promiser. Okay, I'm going to say it again. The ability and the strength to place your faith, belief in God's promises, particularly when it's all going south, when it's all going pear-shaped, all right, is going to largely reside in your knowledge of the promiser. So, and this is important, the key to growing in faith is going to be focusing on my relationship to God. What if King Hezekiah could not, did not know, could not recall, could not remember, had no insight about the promises of David? How? We, we will never know, but it's the question. How strong would his faith have been? How resilient? But he did know it. He knew it. 300 years earlier, a promise the word of God had been given to King David. He'd gone to the scriptures. He'd, he'd taken it to heart. And that was critical. That knowledge. I don't know when he did it. I don't know how he did it. Um, other than the normal custom of every king 
becoming king had to obviously understand the Torah, memorize the Torah. Okay? But that's post the Torah. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So he had the scripture in heart. He knew it. And he had it. And it came to bear in his crisis, particularly with the daunting um, crisis of not having any children. What was he going to do? And we know what he did. He put his faith in the promises of God. So in other words, King Hezekiah was able to trust God prior to the crisis. Because he had a history of walking with God, a relationship with God, he stood. Right? He stood. And, and I guess with us, so often, particularly when things are going well, we neglect God. And when the crisis comes, we find we have no faith, no confidence. And then the problem is not with God, but with us. Because we neglected Him. We, we had not made Him a priority, and we lost our confidence. I mean, it's, it's the same with human relationships. The people you trust are people who have proven their trust. And that's what happens when you're walking with God. And King Hezekiah had a great reputation, and he's characterized as a man who walked with God. God says there's never been a king in all Judah's history that had desired to worship me as this man. Okay, now just peg this in mind. This is very important to know. It's not our behavior that earns God's favor. No, right? It's not our behavior that earns God's favor. God has no favorites. We're just making a statement. The reason we struggle to believe God's promises, particularly in a time of crisis, is because we have neglected our relationship with God and God wants us to, to teach us to walk in faith. To walk in faith. So church, these are good days. I know we have COVID, we have crisis, but these are still good days. We're in a country with relative peace. We have opportunities to learn of God, to grow in God, and in our relationship with God and with one another. Are you using those opportunities? Are you taking them? And if you have these opportunities and you know, are you teaching others? Who taught King Hezekiah? We don't know. But he knew. Thank God for that person that showed him those scriptures. Because it had immediate consequences for him and all the people attached to him. And the same for us when we teach and encourage one another. The other lesson we can take home from this is, and it's not new, um, faith is weighing the human impossibility of my circumstances against the divine impossibility of God breaking His promises. Faith is weighing the human impossibility of my circumstances. It was impossible. I've got disease and I'm going to die. The Assyrians are coming. I have no children. All right? It was impossible. But he weighed it against the impossibility of God breaking his promises. And the only reasonable conclusion he could come to, because faith is not blind, it's built. All right, it's built. And what did his faith lead him to? If God has promised it, it is good as done. If God's promised it, it is good as 
done. Hezekiah got sick. He could feel he was getting sick. He could feel his life weakening towards death. He could see the Assyrians and their power. He knew he had no leverage. He knew he had no child, no heir. So what does he do? He puts his faith in God's promises because that's impossible. It's impossible for God to break his promises. Look at Psalm 132 verses 10 and 11. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. That's where he put his faith. Now I asked you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Okay, so when God told Hezekiah he would be healed, he didn't immediately feel the healing. When God told him he would deliver him from Assyria, he didn't immediately have an army. When God told him he would reroute and rebuild, it's not like he had a few million put into the temple treasury. When God told uh, David that he told him that he would have descendants, he was still without child. All I'm trying to say is that he put his faith in God. And God is greater than anything you can feel, see, or eat, and he's greater than what you are struggling with or hurting with. And the question is, are you going to trust him? Are you going to trust him? And how would we trust him? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, And without faith is it impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You must believe He's this. I come to God totally dependent on Him alone. I believe God with the assurance that He is able. Nothing is impossible for God. I count on Him to keep His promises. I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. And all the promises to God's people are my promises. Look at Hebrews 12 verse 1. Since therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So as we conclude, it's a lot (laughs) that we've covered. But here's the simple question. Can you believe that Jesus Christ has promised to forgive your sins and remember them no more? Can you believe that His loving Kindness will never change. His disposition towards you is always love. Can you believe that His plans are for your best? Can you believe it? Can you believe He's given you a new heart that hungers after God? And that He wants you to feed that heart with His Word, to exercise your faith. Can you believe that you have His presence 24-7? Unlike King David, unlike Hezekiah, you have his presence 365 days, 24-7. Not based on your performance. <laughs> Even at our worst, we can enter God's presence with all 
and reverence. Do you believe verses 15 and 16? These are God's blessings in Christ. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation. And her faithful people shall ever sing for joy. There's material prosperity, provision for the poor, salvation for the priests, joy for the people. This is utopia. This, I mean, and considering in our context with all the elections coming up, I mean, isn't this what politicians promise? They promise all this. <laughs> and it's not new. People have been promising this kind of reality for decades. The whole of man's history has tried to create this. All of man's history has tried to create this. No culture will ever be able to create what only God can create. I want to read a quote from James Boyce about this. The difficulty is no culture has ever achieved this ideal, and even the future, which has always been the bright hope of dreamers, does not look promising. The rule of man has been characterized by irreconcilable ambitions and conflicts of interest. The brains of man have been dedicated to production of military machines and the scattering of death and the desolation among the inhabitants of the earth. Man has looked for peace and found war. He has talked of brotherhood and love and has seen hatred and persecution. He has boasted of his civilization, enlightenment and progress and the so-called heathen have upbraided him for his godless practices. He has spent billions of dollars for war, millions for pleasure, and only a few thousands for the spreading of the gospel of Christ. It gives no promise of improvement, as it was, so it is, and will be until the king comes back. There has not been a period since the fall of man in which the race has enjoyed or witnessed the condition which prophesy, prophecy declares shall obtain in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, this is God's promise to us and even to us today. Verse 17 and 18. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. We, you and me, have a lamp to look upon, to lead us and to guide us. We, verse 18, will be clothed. Our enemies will be clothed with shame, but our heads will be adorned. But his head shall be adorned with a radiant crown. Who is he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus Christ. That's what you and I have today. And the question is, is he enough, my friend? Is he enough? As we conclude, I'll ask you if this is enough, because it says in Hebrews chapter 2, 8 and 9, God left nothing that is not subject to him, that's Jesus Christ. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Okay, and that's our reality, isn't it? God left nothing that is not subject to, him, to them, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But, verse 9, we do see Jesus. But we do see Jesus. And I have to ask you, do you see Jesus? Is he enough for you? It was enough for King Hezekiah. That's why I've called it relying on Yahweh. It was enough. I have no child. 
I'm ill, I'm in crisis uh, corporately, but Yahweh, you are enough. You've promised, and I'm relying on you. And us, friends, today, it was enough for David. Is it enough for you and I today? Of course it is. It's more than sufficient. More than sufficient for us to put our faith into. And with this knowledge, we have more than enough, not only to know this psalm, but to sing this psalm, to share this psalm and this faith and this promise with others, to teach this psalm to the next generation so that they too can remain unshaken, so that they too can remain firm and fixed doing the works that the Lord has planned in advance for you and I to do, so that we too can go boldly and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that we too can go to bed at night with the peace of God, wake up with the confidence of God. Amen? Amen. I trust this playlist of victory has been good for the heart this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. It has been a word of comfort for thousands, for millennia. And today we are privileged to take the same comfort and the same delight, to have the same faith and to be encouraged by the cloud of witnesses. Father, I pray that you would find in us hearts that are ready and willing to obey and to trust, despite what we see, despite what we feel, despite what is not. Father, I pray that you would find in us hearts that are content that Jesus is enough, that you will find us like the slaves waiting for their master to enter the door, ready, equipped, hearts willing, minds open and engaged to do what you would have us to do. Father, you are the greater reality. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you, friends.